Hello, and welcome to another episode of the AMSSM Sports Med Podcast, produced in collaboration with the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I'm your host, Ben Cranin, an emergency medicine physician and sports medicine fellow at the University of Colorado. I'm joined today by Dusty Marie Narducci, family medicine and sports medicine trained, and team physician at the University of South Florida and St. Leo University. Today, we'll be discussing wearable technology and activity tracking for athletes. Dusty, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben, and the entire sports medicine community. It's an absolute pleasure being here today to discuss the use of bioinformatics in athletes. By no means do I consider myself an expert on the topic of technology in sport, kinematics, and kinetics, but I do have some experience that I think it's worth sharing. I was scheduled to present on the use of bioinformatics in the female athlete at the 2020 AMSSM annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. But unfortunately, as we all know, we're currently living in some trying times. But I'm looking forward to 2021 and the annual conference in San Diego. So Ben, back to bioinformatics and wearable technology in sport. This is certainly becoming a very trending topic in the sports world. The range of different types of equipment that we use in sport is absolutely endless. So today we are going to focus only on bioinformatics and the female athlete. Right on. So jumping into the first segment for today's discussion, you know, I'd like to talk about the use of technology for injury prevention and detection. This is a huge topic, so we're going to limit this a bit today. In order to do so, perhaps first we should quickly review the general parameters we hope to obtain from these wearable technologies. Fitness and sport possesses a huge market share of consumer tracking technology. The industry is booming due to people wanting to be at peak fitness levels for health, sport, and aesthetic reasons. The possibilities of bioinformatics in athletes in the general population is outstanding. So the user can track not only their daily activity, but also sleep, food consumption, and fitness activity, all from a device. And how do you think the healthcare system would change with the use of these technologies? Great question, Ben. So the influence that these devices can have on our healthcare system and athletes is infinite. We should expect transformations in medical research and maybe an increase in life expectancy. Financially, healthcare, including insurance costs, may even be reduced. So who knows, maybe the accuracy of medical diagnoses could even be improved. There are three main wearable technology product. So the categories are body sensors, smart glasses, and smart watches. I would expect dramatic improvements in all three categories in the near future, specifically in terms of capabilities, optimization of the user interface, longevity, and convenience, as well as cost. So what aspects can these technologies measure for athletes? So it's quite the list. The sensors of wearable technology include microcontrollers, gyroscopes, magnetometers, accelerometers, global positioning systems, also known as GPS devices, heart rate sensors, pedometers, and pressure sensors. There's so much data to extrapolate from these devices to assist us in caring for our athletes. So I'm just going to give you a few examples, but forgive me, this list is long. Stride length, distance, step count, cadence, and speed. You can also do heart rate, heart variability, heart rate recovery, respiration rate, skin temperature, skin moisture levels, breathing rate, breathing volume, activity intensity, body temperature, calories burned, distance traveled. Are you bored yet, Ben? Oh, my God. (laughs) I got more. So sleep quality and patterns. Some devices can even measure brain waves, posture, force of impact to the head in contact sports. UV measurement to assess sun exposure, endless biomechanical data collected while running, and not to mention altitude, location, and repetition. All right. So really, these devices have a vast potential to capture just about any metric we could possibly dream up. You know, of course, within the sports medicine realm, we'd love to convert this data into a way of preventing injuries. So I know you work a lot with volleyball players. So how is this technology affecting the sport? 
So unlike other team sports where opponent contact is part of the game, volleyball is assumed to be a quote-unquote safe sport. But regardless, volleyball players are still at risk of injuries due to sport-specific tasks, particularly jumping and landing, as well as spiking and blocking the ball. So the International Volleyball Federation, also known as the FIVB, injury surveillance system was established in 2010, and this was to provide information about the rate and pattern of injuries. So it models the IOC protocols, and it provides information about the rate and pattern of injuries in FIVB competitions and also offers directions to prevent these injuries. What did this data from the surveillance system tell us? So the most commonly injured body part was the ankle followed by the knee, with 20% of all injuries being related to overuse. This number is probably higher given the failure to report chronic overuse injuries by athletes. Data has demonstrated that activity modification, volume of jump training, biomechanics, composition of the playing surface, and a tailored strengthening and conditioning program should be considered to prevent knee and overuse injuries. That's awesome. They were able to identify the key variables for these athletes to help with injury prevention. Football and long-distance running are maybe two of the more immediate sports that come to my mind when I think about applying tech. However, there are obviously so many equally important applications to various athletes out there. How can technology help those in other non-contact sports, such as volleyball? So there's commercially available wearable, say that a few times, commercially available wearable jump monitor devices are incorporated into the training of volleyball players, often to decrease the risk of overuse injuries. So these devices can be attached to the waistband and are really small. They're like the width of a nickel. Some commercially wearable jump monitor devices assessing inertial measurement units can accurately quantify vertical displacement and jump count in volleyball athletes. The data we get is pretty cool. So the frequency of jumps alone does not predict the risk of lower extremity overuse injuries in volleyball players, although this is really a pretty common misconception. So we want to avoid mentioning any specific brands here. Some wearable jump monitoring devices have demonstrated excellent accuracy counting volleyball jumps during training and competition. So jump height is not as accurately calibrated by using that jump count alone. But it does provide an acceptable measure of the on-court height that can be used to monitor jump load. I know this gets a little bit confusing, and I don't pretend to be good at math, but a more robust measure of external load, also called the load index, please Google that, has been calculated using a specific algorithm. So this calculation provides more information on workload and its association with injury. So what does the literature come to say about load training in volleyball athletes? So one study found volleyball players who had an average training load of 15 hours per week compared to those who on average had 12 hours per week were more at risk of injury. We've come to the conclusion that an ideal training load based on a four-year prospective cohort study found 12 hours per week among a five-day training schedule with an average of 150 jumps in men per day and 100 jumps per a day in women to be the most safe and effective. So this 12-hour per week training was found to be superior to training regimens of 15 hours per week. So using wearable technology can help you not only calculate the number of jumps, but also the load. And that's really what we care about. So hopefully this can prevent injury by determining athletes at risk or at least lead to more research on training thresholds. All right, right on. And, you know, shifting a little bit, you know, I know you work a lot with female athletes. So how can tech track and optimize their performance? Yes, Ben, the female athlete throughout her lifespan is my absolute favorite population. 
The use of bioinformatics for female athletes is endless. So last season, I implemented a menstrual cycle tracker for my Division I women college basketball players. Although this is not a wearable technology, it's a great example of a technology that can be used by athletes, although it does require their input of their own data. The reason I chose to do this was because in a recent study, more than half of elite female athletes reported that hormonal fluctuations during their menstrual cycle negatively affected their exercise training and performance capacity. The use of menstrual phase digital platforms can allow female athletes to record their menstrual cycle and become more aware of their unique physiology. Multiple commercial products do exist to assist female athletes in recording their menstrual cycle, but again, to avoid specific names, I'm going to say that I personally chose to use the product that I felt was most relatable for athletes in their athletic performance. So again, without mentioning any brand names, how do these menstrual phase digital platforms work You know, in general? So this form of bioinformatics was created to provide insight into how the menstrual cycle affects performance, injury, mood, sleep, and recovery for our female athletes. The hope was that more optimal training could be reached by athletes, coaches, athletic trainers, and other individuals of the medical team by using these devices. Athletes can track their period, report symptoms, log training activity, and can use the app to get nutrition and physiology support during each phase of their cycle. So the app is very user-friendly, both for the athlete as well as the team physician. So Ben, I know you want to hear all about the menstrual cycle and its phases. Are you ready? Yep, let's do it. So depending on the app being used, the menstrual cycle can be divided into the follicular, ovulation, and the luteal phases. The athlete-specific device I chose to use had four phases of the menstrual cycle. First being the menstruation, aka early follicular phase. Phase two was the follicular to ovulation phase. Phase three was the luteal phase. And phase four is the premenstrual, aka late luteal phase. So why do we even consider having our female athletes track their menstrual cycles? So there's a lot of thought that the menstrual cycle is going to impact exercise performance, injury risk, and response to recovery in the female athlete. But buyer beware, there are significant gaps in the literature due to a limited number of high-quality prospective studies as well as randomized control trials. I'm guessing we still have a lot to learn before we can provide confident recommendations as clinicians, right? So is there anything we can put out to clinicians now to help with optimizing care? Absolutely. So there's some common trends that sports clinicians and female athletes can consider. So optimal race performance is suggested to occur prior to menstruation, and that's really during that early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. This is when hormones are at the lowest level just before menstruation begins. It is also suspected that an increase in joint laxity and reduced neuromuscular control occurs during the pre-ovulatory phase. This is when estrogen is rising to peak, and this may increase an athlete's risk of injury. During the progression from the follicular phase to the ovulation phase, there may be an increase in muscle adaptation and therefore possibly an opportunity to focus on increasing strength and high-intensity training in female athletes. And then last but not least, during the early luteal phase, this is when progesterone levels are really high and it can lead to fluid retention, delayed onset of sweating response, and even potential increase in muscle breakdown. Although effect on overall performance has not been shown, these are all things to consider. Does the use of birth control pose any barriers to optimizing athletic performance? Ben, you're so wise. I'm glad you asked this question. So since over 50% of female athletes are using some form of contraceptive, Wondering if the use of birth control poses a problem when tracking the menstrual cycle is a phenomenal question and concern. Before I even answer this question, I want to begin by saying that birth control has multiple purposes and its use should not be detoured because tracking may be skewed in athletes. So athletes with a progesterone IUD or intrauterine device will have suppressed natural progesterone levels. 
but they'll still have natural estrogen that fluctuates up and down throughout their cycle. So therefore, those that are using the IUD will still ovulate. But the problem is, is that females with this method of birth control don't really have a regular cycle. Also, with an IUD becoming more and more popular and its association with amenorrhea, menstrual tracking devices just might not be useful in the future. Athletes taking oral birth control pills will have inhibition of their normal body's cyclic hormones and ovulation will be prevented. So these athletes will not be able to record their cycles accurately using devices like this. So yes, being on birth control can limit the use of menstrual cycle tracking. All right, so if, if you're able to boil this all down for us, you know, should we be tracking periods or not for our athletes? I'm not the best at being politically correct, Ben, but I'm confident when I say due to our limited data, training regimens and performance assessments should really not be based exclusively on an athlete's particular phase of their menstrual cycle. In the appropriate setting, recording of the menstrual cycle phase can be considered and may assist in the interpretation of performance results and evaluation of changes in performance. But aside from that, I'd be a little bit weary. Female athletes should maintain a balance of awareness and consider the use of performance training menstrual phase digital platforms to learn about their unique physiological nature rather than to dictate their training and competition. All right. No, that sounds good. Now, what about for our pregnant athletes? You know, how are we using tech to optimize their performance? So most major medical societies agree that women with uncomplicated pregnancies should be encouraged to exercise as part of a healthy lifestyle before, during, and after pregnancy. The intensity, frequency, and duration of exercise really depends on patient-specific factors. So due to our limited research, currently there's no upper level of safe exercise intensity in pregnancy, making it really difficult to counsel recreational, competitive, and elite female athletes on exercise during pregnancy. So recommended methods to monitor intensity and exercise during pregnancy include metabolic equivalents, also known as your METs of activity, monitoring heart rate, and then tracking perceived exertion. Some elite or competitive pregnant athletes may desire monitoring energy intensity through VO2 max determinants, but due to unethical standards to test pregnant women to exercise quote-unquote failure, this sounds horrible, this practice is absolutely avoided, so we don't really have any raw data. Those who have access to monitoring equipment are advised to refrain from training at intensities more than 90% of their VO2 max, although this is not supported by any actual data, but rather expert opinion. Well, you may have already answered my question, but what would you say the overall evidence is behind these recommendations? You're getting me excited because I love digging into the evidence behind our clinical recommendations. And frankly, I often end up really disappointed. So target training heart rate recommendations for pregnant women differ around the world with target heart rate zones varied by country. The heart rate zone recommendations range anywhere from 60% to 90% of maximal heart rate. And the most commonly quoted study we use as a heart rate target for pregnant women desiring exercise didn't even include elite athletes, Ben. Swing and a miss. Overall, due to the lack of controls and standardization, failure to include pre-pregnancy fitness level estimates, and the failure to differentiate between types of exercise among available studies really leaves us with limited high-quality evidence. And then we can't really accurately recommend the appropriate level of exercise intensity for our athletes who wish to continue exercise during pregnancy. As such, we don't regularly recommend to pregnant athletes that they use a heart rate monitoring device when gauging exercise intensity. They really should just listen to their body and be educated by their sports clinician and OBGYN on when to stop exercise. Oh, thanks, Dusty. No, that's actually a really good overview of the entire topic. With so many devices and conflicting info out there, I'd love to pose some clarifying questions. First and foremost, I just have to ask Dusty, where did this whole 10,000 steps thing come from? 
Yes, Ben, I'm so glad you're asking this question. Origin of the 10,000 Steps recommendation is actually not based on scientific evidence. Are you surprised? Honestly, not really. (laughs) Following the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, pedometers were sold in Japan and were marketed as Mampo Kai. I might be saying that wrong, but this literally translates to 10,000 steps meter. So this concept expanded into a collective walking and media craze recommending 10,000 steps a day for health benefits. So you're telling me is pretty much I spent my entire adulthood thinking there had to be some sort of science behind the number as it appears literally everywhere. But it was a marketing thing. It was just marketing. That's all this is. All marketing. I'm so sorry. Uh, My dreams. All right. So what is the magic number? How many steps should we be recommending? We can't deny that regular walking has been shown to improve overall health and all-cause and cardiovascular mortality. So a 2019 study in JAMA looked at the association of step volume and intensity with all-cause mortality in older women. And the reason I'm talking about this is because older women was part of my bioinformatics lecture. So this study included approximately 17,000 females with an average age of 72 years old. So steps among participating women were monitored for seven days, remember that, seven days, using a wrist-worn accelerometer. The follow-up was at 4.3 years. So the conclusion of the study found there to be a mortality benefit in four years with an average of 4,400 daily steps. But we have to dive a little bit deeper, and this is where I make my medical students and residents and fellows kind of dive in deep into the study. So we found little benefit after 3,000 daily steps if you look at the data. Also, the study had similar limitations, including recall bias, probable influence of the Hawthorne effect, and I think it's contributing a decrease in mortality risk at four years based on only seven days of recorded activity. That's a bit of a stretch. So maybe the real number is more something like 3,000, or should we tell our patients to get 10,000 a day? You know, more is better. So every patient is different. So I would be curious if an extra 7,000 steps a day would really be harmful, even if it wasn't helpful. I mean, really, I guess the underlying issue we're all trying to address with activity tracking is whether or not we're doing enough to stay fit and potentially lose weight. So how have the numbers shaken out in that respect? So although activity trackers do encourage physical activity among older adults, studies have shown that there is no increase in weight loss with their use. Kind of disappointing. So a randomized control trial of obese adults found that use of a wearable device to monitor diet and physical activity was not superior to self-monitoring of diet and exercise in regards to improvements in body composition, fitness, physical activity, and diet. So although wrist-worn devices are easier to use, pedometers worn on the waist continue to demonstrate more accuracy when counting steps. So surprisingly, more expensive wrist-worn activity trackers have not been found to be any more accurate than the less expensive trackers in most research. And step quantification accuracy with wrist monitors is limited by activities that require a lot of arm movement, slower walking speeds, climbing up and down stairs, and unstructured activities. So as long as you have this information and you explain this to your patient and, you know, take it into account, you can't really go wrong by promoting physical activity. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, just get out there and do something. And yeah, if you understand that, all right, if you're not moving your arm, it's not going to count your steps appropriately. But how about this? What if we throw a heart rate monitor into the mix? Is that going to give us some better data to work with? So our athletes love to monitor their heart rate with the goal of measuring the intensity of effort and their physiological adaptation to training. 
Most athletes and clinicians don't realize, though, that the accuracy of heart rate monitors have been tested during moderate levels of exercise, with most studies being of very, very small sample sizes. So also, most study participants had a huge variation in their baseline fitness level, and most assessments of walking and running activities have only been conducted in controlled indoor environments. So this isn't real life, especially not for our athletes. So from our limited data, wrist-worn devices are not as accurate as chest strap monitoring systems for monitoring heart rate, but they're definitely more comfortable and practical. So clinicians really should just keep in mind that all studies in heart rate monitoring accuracy are going to decline during these high-intensity exercises, possibly limiting their use in our high-level athletic individuals. So kind of we've been saying throughout this past segment is that these risk-worn trackers should be encouraged more so to engage folks in regular activity and promote overall health rather than as, you know, some precise means of calorie measuring and things like that. Absolutely. I think you summed it up great, Ben. Good deal. Well, speaking of which, it is time to wrap up the show. So in summary, bioinformatics is a growing field and is applicable to the health and safety of all athletes, regardless of whether they compete in a contact-based sport. Second, menstrual device platforms are useful to assist female athletes in learning about their unique physiologic makeup, but training regimens and performance assessments should not be based exclusively on menstrual cycle phases. And finally, for the everyday athlete, regular walking has been shown to improve overall health and all-cause and cardiovascular mortality, but the number of daily steps needed is debatable. Activity trackers are often inaccurate and have not shown to increase weight loss in older adults. Well, we covered an awful lot today, but there is so much more out there for our listeners to sink their teeth into regarding wearable tech and athletes. For those considering a research project, there's likely a vast amount of data you can pull from within your own institution. Dusty, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to teach us about all this. Ben, thank you so much for having me today. The use of bioinformatics in athletes is unfathomable. I look forward to producing another podcast with other clinicians interested in the field of bioinformatics and wearable technology. There is definitely a lot of experts out there in our AMSSM world. I'm sending positive vibes to our sports medicine community. Everybody stay safe and well.